so tonight uh, we are going to look at a passage in Matthew. We've not been doing a series through Matthew. We're not going to touch Matthew uh, again anytime soon. Uh, this really is just one of those Sundays where it was like, man, what is the passage that uh, God has been doing a work in my life with? And it's this one. And um, I can tell you that uh, when I say God's been doing a work on me in it, I, I, I'm not anywhere close. I feel like uh, you, many of you have so much to offer me about this whole discussion. Uh, I've just made an inch, I've just inched forward a touch these last few months uh, when it comes to all of this. But it does relate to New Year's in many ways. You know, we're 12 days in. Uh, you have 353 days to go to white knuckle it uh, before you give up and uh, adopt something else. Uh, and most of us, 12 days in, we, we've, all, we, we're, we've already quit. Um, but I did see some uh, New Year's resolutions that seemed a little more doable, at least for me. Uh, one of it was um, borrow things more often, return them less often. That was one that got me. Um, start smoking to lose weight. Um, that was a New Year's resolution. Another one that, uh, that I found was watch more cute and cuddly kitten videos on YouTube. Um, so, it, it, but, but seriously, I mean, we know that something is really wrong with us. And as Christians, many times we get to the new year and we say, all right, I, I really want the, the change, the power that raised Jesus from the dead. I want that power to change my life. Jesus lives in me. His resurrection power is in me. Change is possible. And so I'm going to go about that change. And I'm going to say, I just want to read my Bible every day this year. I want to read through the Bible this year. I just want to pray. I'm going to get my prayer cards out. I'm going to make prayer cards, and I'm going to kill it. Maybe I already know I'm not going to do it every day, but five days a week. I'm going to try to average five days a week, and then change is going to happen in my life. As Christians, we know that our bodies are on the decline, that they're wasting away, but we know that our spirits are being renewed, that they're on the incline. But some of us, we know these things are true, but in our hearts, we're not there. We're cynical. We don't believe change is really possible because we've tried before and nothing really happened. Or maybe we're confused. We, like, we know this. We know change is possible. We know that the power of Jesus is available to us, but we're not so sure how that all works. And it's true. The gospel is what changes us. But the gospel comes to us in different ways to bring about that change. And I, I want to bring, bring out at least three. There, there, there may be more, but I want to just talk about three. One is that the gospel comes to us individually. Sometimes the Holy Spirit does use uh, His Word. He uses a passage of Scripture that we're reading devotionally, maybe something we're reading in a book, maybe something that happens in a sermon. And God gives really specific application of how that might change our lives. And that's how God does change our lives sometimes. Other times, it's not individually, it happens circumstantially. Sometimes our life's circumstances force transformation on us. Maybe it's a, a lack of focus on the self and focus on others that happens when you get married or when you have a baby. Maybe it's a physical illness that shows you how finite life is and how glorious God is. Maybe it's a job loss, maybe it's a move, maybe it's a breakup. And any of those things, they create deeper levels of dependence that bring about our personal transformation. There's one more. This is a tough one. It's community. It's a really tough one for us Americans. We mainly, again, think about our spiritual life as this individual endeavor. We think of it as something that we do alone. We read our Bible. We pray. And that's why we think change happens, for the most part, it happens throughout one, individually. 
We think if I'm going to change, I've got to go after it with practicing all these spiritual disciplines. And, and, and that is true. But it's going to be a corporate endeavor too. You can live your whole life and think change is going to happen to you through these individual means and through your circumstances. And you miss out what God's intention is for you. And that is that Christian community is what brings about change. But community is really, really messy. Marriages are messy, families are messy, and churches are messy. When people tell me that they've been hurt by the church, I can empathize. I've been there. I've been hurt by the church too. But part of me sometimes, depending on the relationship, the nature of the conversation, I, I, I can ask a question, well, what did you expect? And they say, well, that's not how Christians are supposed to act. And I say, sure, the church has Christians, but we Christians can still be very beastly. And Jesus knows this. That's why he preaches the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is all about how change happens. And he deals with it on individual ways in chapters 5 and 6. In chapters 5 and 6, he addresses our character. He addresses our piety. He addresses our ambition. He addresses our influence. And then chapter 7, he, he, he does make a turn. He makes a turn by talking about how the kingdom affects our relationships. He talks about this whole thing of Christian community. And Jesus assumes that life in Christian community is going to be messy. And so he gives us this framework. He gives us a framework here at the beginning of chapter 7. So let's read the passage. Verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Let's pray. Father, once again, I bring very little to these moments other than my vanity and my insecurity. And Lord, I, I, I am keenly aware, especially tonight, that um, I really don't have anything. And so, Lord, I, I pray uh, that your spirit would anoint your word and, Lord, would uh, touch us in the deepest of places. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so verses uh, 1 and 2, we see a principle. Uh, verses 3 to 5, we see a strategy. Verse 6, we see reality. So you see principle, strategy, reality. All right, let's start with the principle, verses 1 and 2. Jesus tells his followers in verse 1, don't be judgmental. But us Christians are apparently really bad at following this prohibition. Because here's what I found this week. I put Christians are in Google. Just want to see what's going to pop up. Christians are. Top two responses that kind of came down. First one uh, was a cuss word. A double snakes holes was the first one. The second one was Christians are judgmental. So there they are. That's apparently what Google says we are. And I agree. Jesus agrees. That's why he says what he does in verse 1. Jesus knows we need to hear it. The prohibition, don't be judgmental, is speaking of the responsibilities that we Christians, that we have to one another. 
It means we've got to get off the bench of being the judge of everyone, thinking that we have the ability to know with certainty the motives of our fellow brothers and sisters. It means we can't pour water on their dreams. It means we can't be ungenerous with their mistakes. See, the judgmental person really doesn't have any desire to build up, to encourage. It just has the desire to correct. The judgmental person speaks only to puff him or herself up, to be heard, to enhance his or her own reputation. But the command to judge not is not a requirement to be blind, but rather a plea to be generous. And if you can't adopt this posture of generosity, verse 2 tells you what's going to happen. And in verse 2, it's unclear if it means that others will be judgmental to us when we're judgmental of them, or whether it means that God is going to be judgmental of us when we're judgmental of our brothers and sisters. But either way, what verse 2 is doing is giving us motivation to eliminate attitudes of superiority towards our fellow Christians. That's the principle. And principles are great, but with principles, we always need these practical handles. We need practical handles in order to integrate these things into our lives. And Jesus knows this, so Jesus gives us a strategy in these next few verses. He gives us a strategy to eliminate our attitudes of superiority. And he does it in verses 3 to 5 by giving us this vivid, vivid metaphor, doesn't he? He's talking about foreign objects in our eyeballs that keep us from using, to keep us from having full use of our vision faculty. He talks about a person who sees a speck in his brother's eye, all while having a log in his own. See, the person who sees the speck is absorbed, absorbed in a campaign, a campaign to eliminate sin and others. All the while, he is blind to his own sin. In fact, his sin is the log. It's greater than his brother's, which is a speck. Let me put it another way. The judgmental person is more sensitive to the sin of others than he is the sin in his own heart. And the most, one of the most obvious examples of this we see in the passage that we heard read earlier, 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12, what's happened previous to chapter 12 is that King David has stolen the wife of another man. And when he steals his wife of another man, King David already has a harem. He always has tons of wives. But he's not satisfied with them, so he lusts after Bathsheba. He seduces her. He has sex with her. He gets her pregnant. And when he finds out that she's pregnant, he wants to do away with her husband. And her husband is not out partying. Her husband is out fighting one of King David's wars. And so King David orders for her husband Uriah to be killed. So now he's not just an adulterer, he's also a murderer. And soon after these events that he's made all this happen with Bathsheba and Uriah, chapter 12 happens. Nathan comes to talk to David. And instead of confronting David outright, he tells him a story. He tells him a story about a poor farmer who has just one little lamb, and the little lamb is stolen by his neighbor. The neighbor has, is rich and has a huge flock. And when David hears the story, he's incensed by the greed of this rich farmer. He's seething, 
and he asks, who is this wicked farmer? And Nathan says, David, you are. Somehow, King David, who's incredibly blind, has been unconscious of the plank in his own eye as he fumed over the sawdust speck in the rich farmer's. But what's clear in David's case and what's implied in Matthew 7 is that to have strong feelings about the sins of others that aren't matched by ruthless dealing with our own sins is hypocrisy. See, all of us, maybe even especially Christians, we have a fatal tendency. We have a fatal tendency to exaggerate the faults of others and minimize the gravity of our own. We've got a rosy view of ourselves and distorted view of others. Indeed, what we're really doing is we're seeing our own faults in other people and we're judging them vicariously. That way we get the experience of being self-righteous without the pain of repentance. See, repentance is painful. Painful. But cheer up. You're a way bigger sinner than you could ever imagine. Cheer up. That's good news. Because even though you're a bigger sinner than you could ever imagine, God's grace covers you. He loves you more than you could ever imagine. And love wins out. See, what happens is that Jesus' death on our behalf says that we're disasters as human beings. But because Jesus voluntarily and even gladly dies for us, says that we're more valued than our wildest dreams could ever comprehend. So here's what happened. When, when, when we repent, we, we don't have to be afraid of being known in our sin. Because there's nothing in you that could ever be exposed that hasn't already been covered by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, your Savior. So when, when you go to a person to confront them about their sin... What happens is our our, our confrontation becomes a chance for that other person to repent. It becomes an opportunity for that person to believe the gospel in deeper ways. And if you go about your confrontation the way that Jesus says to go about your confrontation, by the time you get to your confrontation, you've removed the log out of your own eye. You've been forced also to repent of your sin. You've also been forced to believe the gospel in deeper ways. That's why it's really important that we do this work here. As a church, we begin to engage in this hard, messy work because it leads to our growth in the gospel. But it's really messy. It's really hard to hit the balance between challenging and listening. It's hard to hit the balance of truth and tears. See, most of, all of us, really, we're either fixers or we're feelers. If you're a fixer, you really do, you have genuine desires, and you may even be right about the sin that you see in other people. But you count it as your responsibility to tell all of them so that you can fix them. You're fixers. Or you're feelers. You say, oh, man, I, I, I can never confront someone. Because I might hurt their feelings, or they might in return hurt me for confronting them. But then we miss the opportunity for this gospel growth. 
Well, you, you might say, well, Marsh, I mean, I, I, I've got this really messy relationship. And I'm really, really hurt. And the other person, I've already, I, I'm positive. The way that I see things, they're the one who caused this messy relationship. Well, I believe you. it could be true. Sin hurts. But sometimes the sin in other people brings out the ugly things in us. Oftentimes when someone else's speck hurts us, we let it fester. We let it fester in such a way that we respond with unforgiveness and cold-heartedness and anger and lack of love to the point that we have a log in our eye while the other person has a speck. But there are other times that this speck log thing, it just doesn't work. Not practically, principally. The speck log paradigm, it, it's, it's, used, it's, it's supposed to be used when we're hurt by someone who's had a lapse in judgment. Someone who had a moment of weakness. Someone who engaged in a sudden impulsive act. It's sin and it's serious and it really hurts You've got to do the log spec thing here. That's garden variety. That's what this passage is speaking of. But there's this other class of sin by which we can be hurt. It's the sin that's intentional, that's cunning, that deceives, that's deviant. And that's not garden variety. When that's what you're dealing with, you're likely dealing with an abuser. And if you've been abused, you don't need to go to your abuser and apologize for the log in your eye and point out their speck. And if that's the broken relationship that you have in mind here, if that's what's haunting you, then can I encourage you, rather than confront, to get help. Church is here for you. There's resources at your disposal. Healing has been offered to you in Jesus. But it's not going to come to the log and spec for you if you're a victim of abuse. And a lot of times, those of us who are dealing with garden variety sin, we want to get over into this category of abuse. We want to name what we have dealt with as abuse when maybe we've only been dealing with garden variety sin. Because we don't have to remove the log from our eye when that's the case. You might say, Marsha, I, I get it. I, I, get the, the, I, I get the strategy that Jesus is talking about here, the principle, I'm not going to judge. I'm going to remove the log from my eye. And love and humility, I'm going to point out the speck in theirs. But what happens if they don't see the speck? What do I do? Well, Jesus gets to that. That's what he does in verse 6. And that's what gets us to our final point, the reality. And Jesus has used this vivid metaphor with the log and the speck, but now he uses these really dynamic, colorful terms in verse 6, he uses these terms, dogs and pigs. And he's using them to acknowledge that there are times when we point out the speck in other people. We do so with love and humility, and it's not received. What do you do? You begin to see those people as dogs and pigs. 
See, every time we confront someone with love and humility, we necessarily, we have to give them the gospel. We have to give them hope. Otherwise, we're being judgmental. But there are people who can't digest the gospel. The taste is bitter to them. See, the pig, when the pearl's offered, he thinks he's getting food, and he bites down on it. He sees that it's hard. He sees that it's inevitable. And you see what happens? He gets furious. He doesn't see that the person who's given them a pearl has been generous. He doesn't realize that it's something of great value, so he turns and tramples on the person who's given them, given them this great gift. So you see what this calls for, don't you? It calls for discernment. We must be discerning. Jesus is discerning. Jesus asked his disciples to be concerning in Matthew chapter 10. He says, if you go into a city and they reject the kingdom, then you must shake the dust off their feet. John 2, 24, Jesus says, Jesus would not entrust himself to those who watched him do miracles because he knew that they were evil. Paul comes to less than glowing conclusions about some of the people that he shared the gospel with. He This happens in Acts 13, 18, 28. Happens in Galatians 1. Happens in Titus 3. And so, see, we aren't supposed to be these undiscerning blobs who refuse to use discretion. In fact, what verse 6 is saying is that you'll end up getting trampled on if you are undiscerning. But what we're looking for as we navigate relationships in the Christian community is not sinlessness. But what we're looking for is repentance. What makes you a dog or a pig is not whether or not you sin. What makes you a dog or a pig is whether or not you repent. So how do you get the pigginess out of your life? Well, you already, we already talked, talked, I mean, touched on the first one. If you're giving feedback, you've got to be sure you repent before you confront. That's how you begin to get the pigginess out of your life. But when you're receiving feedback then you've got to make it safe for people to criticize you. If you don't make it safe, you're either going to be defensive or you're going to be devastated. If you're defensive, then it's likely a sign that someone has threatened something that you hold dear and you don't want to lose it. Or you become devastated. And when you become devastated, it really is just a way of biting back the person who's lovingly, with humility, giving you feedback. See, Matthew uses this image, this image of a pearl. Here, Matthew 7 does it again, does it in Matthew 13. And in both places, the pearl is a metaphor for the gospel. Matthew 7, pigs don't value pearls because they'd rather have something useful, something useful like food. But in Matthew 13, Jesus says that there's a merchant, and this merchant finds a pearl. In order to purchase the pearl, sells all that he has because he finds this pearl to be so beautiful to him. And our spiritual pigginess sees the gospel not as beautiful, but as useful. It gets me into heaven. It teaches me morality. It gives something for my kids to do that's positive. It gives me friends. That's seeing it as useful. And what's going to happen is that when you think that the gospel's not giving you community, or when the gospel's not giving you moral instruction, you begin to bite back. 
But we begin to grow out of our pigginess when we see the gospel not as something that we consume, but something that we're willing to sell everything for because we think it's beautiful to us. Do you find Jesus to be beautiful? I really hope you do. Let's pray. Father in heaven, help us um, grow up by becoming children. We will quit building our castles on sand on our reputation and we begin to build our house on the rock, the rock of you, where we can take off our armor and be safe in your presence. We pray this in your name, amen.